page 93 is where you need to be looking for Exodus 34. And we begin at verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be back. It's about 18 months, I think, since I was um, last somewhere up here. And it's great to be back. Bethan will be around for the second service. You might see her after this one, if you're looking forward to seeing her as well. And it's great to be, have the chance to open up God's words together now. So let me pray for us, and then we'll have a look at those verses from the book of Exodus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you do want to make yourself known today, and that by your Spirit, through your Word, the Bible, you make yourself known today. Father, we pray that as we look at these words together now, you would show us something of yourself and something of your son, Jesus, that we might put our trust in him and cling to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, if I was to ask you to complete the sentence, I like to think God is, how would you do it? What would you choose? What's God like? What Or what should God be like? What do you think God should be like? And I guess I'm asking more there, God's character. So perhaps he's loving, perhaps he's kind, perhaps he's just, perhaps he should be fair. How would you finish the sentence? I like to think God is blank. What would you put in that place? I guess most of us, when we think of that question, we'll fall into one of two camps. On the one hand will think something along the lines of, I think God should be loving. I think God should forgive me. I think God should want what's best for me. After all, if, if there is a God, and if there is a life beyond this one, if there is a heaven and a hell, then of course we're going to want God to accept us, to forgive us, to love us, to take us to be with him, to give us eternal life. Surely that's, that's what we'd want, isn't it? So on the one hand, an answer to that question is we want God to be loving. But I think some people would also say, well, I think God should be just, that God should hold people to account. And often I think it's when we see the injustice in the world, when we see the evil that there is in this world, that we think that a second one 
terrorism, what happened in Brussels, Paris, London, uh, genocide, that's been in the news lately again, um, war, murder, rape, crime, all these things, they make us think, well, God should be loving, God should be just. He shouldn't let these people go unpunished. He should hold them to account. He certainly shouldn't just let them into heaven, to a place like that. We like to think that God would be just. And I think the amazing thing about the God of the Bible is that he's both of those things. He is a loving God. He's a just God. He's both of those things uh, at the same time. We heard that in the reading we had um, from the book of Exodus. I don't think I could quite do it with the gravitas that my friend Peter did. Thank you very much for the reading. Let me just read out those words that God said again. See, in the reading, God himself comes down and he declares his name to this man called Moses. And God said this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now as we read that, we ask ourselves, what's God doing here as he comes down this mountain to see this man Moses and proclaim his name? Well, he's describing himself, isn't he? God is saying to Moses, and he's saying to us today as we read these words thousands of years later, God is saying, this is what I'm like. This is the kind of God that I am. And he says, I am a God of faithful love. I am a God of faithful love. He says, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God comes down and he says, I am a God of faithful love. But he also says, I am a God of faithful judgment. We heard read, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God will not leave the guilty unpunished, he says. In another translation it reads, but who will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will he clear the guilty. He will hold them to account. God is a God of faithful judgment. Now it's worth pausing there just for a minute because there's a bit of that description about God that actually we might find a bit uncomfortable. What does it mean when it says that God punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation? That sounds a bit strange. It sounds almost like God isn't just, that he's punishing someone for the sin that they didn't commit. Well, I think it's fair to say, first of all, that actually the Bible consistently, everywhere, even in the Old Testament, tells us that God only punishes people for their own sins. If you go to the chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 18, there's a whole chapter about that very thing, that God punishes people for their own sins. And so to make sense of these verses here in Exodus, we need to just recognise that in the time of uh, the Old Testament, family units were even more interconnected than they, were, than they are today. Uh, three or four generations would live on the same plot of land or even in the same house. I don't know quite how we'd feel about that today, but that's how it was back then, three or four generations. And the older generation, the parents or the grandparents, they'd have a kind of leadership role. They'd be looked up to, they'd make the decisions, they'd set the direction of the family. 
And so if the parents or the grandparents were to have sinned, then either everyone would have known about it and so been complicit and therefore guilty to some extent. Or actually, they would have been involved themselves in whatever it was the parents were doing because of these kind of interconnected lives they all lived. And so they would definitely have been guilty in that case as well. See, the culture of the Old Testament was a much more corporate culture than we have nowadays. And the consequences of sin, of doing things that aren't right, would have had much more immediate and visible uh, consequences, not just for the perpetrator, but for all those close to them as well. And I think that's kind of what this bit of Exodus is getting at. This is what it means that God will punish the children to the third and fourth generation. He's saying, I am a God of faithful judgment, and I will judge people for the sins they commit. And so the point of these verses that we heard read is that God is saying, well, I am a God of faithful love, but I am also a God of faithful judgment. He is both of these things at the same time. He is loving, he is forgiving, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And so I wonder if you can begin to kind of feel the tension that sort of builds in this. How can God be both these things at the same time? How can God be forgiving and yet at the same time not clear the guilty? It almost feels like, I don't know if you've done this, where you get two of the same magnets and you try and push them closer and closer and closer together, but they just won't meet. They kind of sort of flip out. They won't touch. It's kind of like that. This tension builds. How do these two things about God, how do they meet? How do they resolve? How can God be both of these things at the same time? And that's not just an intellectual problem. It's not just a theoretical problem. Actually, you know what? That's a really personal problem. It's a problem for you, it's a problem for me, it's a problem for everyone. Because while we often like to think that God will be loving towards us, that he'll be forgiving towards us, that God, the people that God should judge doesn't include me, the problem with that is it's very hard to draw that line that separates us from them. I'm not saying anything here, I'm just making an illustration, us from them. It's very hard to draw that line. It's very hard to be neat about that line, to be definite about that line. And actually, intuitively, we know that's the truth. Intuitively, we know it's the truth because one of the reasons we would like to think that God is loving is that he will forgive us, that he will understand that we're trying to do our best and he'll understand and forgive us when we get it wrong. See, intuitively, we know that actually in our lives there are some of those things that God by no means can leave unpunished. But let me give you two examples that just kind of flesh this out a bit that help us see why it's hard to draw that line between us and them, those who God should love, those who God should judge. The first example is from a guy called Francis Schaeffer. You might have heard this one before. I'm sorry if you have. And imagine that every time you said something in life along the lines of people should do X, people should not do Y, every time you made a moral judgment in life, It was recorded. Maybe your phone, maybe it's a new app, your phone can record every time you make a moral judgment. It starts storing them up over time. Or maybe someone just sort of follows you around and writes them down. Every time you say something like, I think people should do this and they shouldn't do that. Things like, uh, people shouldn't lie. Uh, People should be generous and should share with people who don't have quite so much as them. People shouldn't gossip behind other people's backs. People shouldn't steal. And then at the end of your life, God says to you, okay, look, I can't let the guilty go unpunished. I'm a God of faithful judgment. I can't let the guilty go unpunished. But 
What I'll do is I'll judge you on the basis of the things that you've said rather than according to my perfect standard. And so God starts to play back that list of the things that we've said throughout our lives. And God says, well, you said people shouldn't lie, but have you always told the truth? God says, "Um, you said people should be generous, but were you ever selfish? You said people shouldn't gossip, but have you ever, or have you always been honest about others? You said people shouldn't steal, but did you ever take anything that wasn't yours? And so I hope we see the point. Actually, the lines that we draw sometimes to separate kind of us and them, those who God loves, those who God should judge, they aren't aren't nearly as neat and tidy as we like to think. We fail our own standards, let alone God's standards. Now, okay, you might say, that's, that's quite small things, maybe they are, fair enough. What about the big things, some of those things we talked about at the very beginning? Terrorism, murder, things like that. Well, let's do a second example. This time, from Jesus. Here's something Jesus said. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, I think, in those words, Jesus is making a really profound point. A really profound point. He's saying that the difference between anger and murder is one of degree, not of kind. To put it another way, he's saying anger and murder are not two separate things. Actually, they're the same thing. But just one of them has been allowed to go much further than the other. He's saying murder really is just anger given means and opportunity and even just that momentary lack of restraint. And anger becomes murder. Jesus says the same thing, uh, sorry, says the same thing about lust and adultery. And so perhaps we see that the lines that we draw to separate us from them actually are a lot harder to draw than we think. They're not as clear as we'd like them to be. So yes, God is a God of faithful love. He is a God of faithful judgment. And the tension for us is, well, how can then God forgive me if he's got to punish those things I've done wrong? Can you feel that tension? Faithful love, faithful judgment. How do they meet? How do they come together? How does this get resolved? And that's a tension that runs through much of the Bible. On one level, we could say, actually, the story of the Bible is the story of that tension trying to be resolved. And part of the reason I say that is because that passage that we heard read earlier from Exodus 34, actually, in the Old Testament, it becomes a kind of foundational statement about who God is. Time and time again, the Old Testament refers back to it. And one place it's quoted is in the book of Jonah. You probably remember the story, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. The problem with Jonah is we often get distracted by the big fish and we miss the point of the story because the point of the story is actually about God's faithful love and his faithful judgment and how those two things work. See, in the story of Jonah, Jonah was sent to a city, a city described by some as the kind of Nazi Germany of their day, a terrible city, and he was sent there to proclaim God's judgment, to tell them that God was going to come and punish them for the evil that they'd done. But Jonah didn't want to go. And the twist in the story is why Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to go because he knew what God was like. He knew what God had said about himself in Exodus 34. He even quotes it, alludes to it at the end of the story. You see, Jonah knew that if he were to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's judgment, which he did, and if the Ninevites believed him and repented, Nineveh being the city that he was sent to, if they believed him and repented, which they did, 
then God would be merciful and loving and he would forgive them, which God did. And so in this story, we see the kind of first glimpse, really, of how this tension is going to be resolved. How is it that God can be loving and and judging at the same time? And we realise that God's faithful love will be shown to everyone who repents. Everyone who acknowledges they haven't lived a life following God as they should have done. Everyone who acknowledges that they haven't even really lived a good life. And he turns around and says to God, God, I'm sorry, help me to live following you instead. Everyone who does that, God demonstrates his faithful love towards by loving them forever. So the tension kind of begins to be resolved. We begin to see how it's going to be resolved. The the magnets are kind of moving closer, but they're not yet touching. Because the question still remains, if God really is a just God, if he really is faithful in judgment, then how can he really let bad things go unpunished? Let's go back to the story of Jonah. If Nineveh really was the kind of Nazi Germany of their day, how can God just ignore what they've done? And then how can God forgive me if I've mistreated him and mistreated others? How can he just ignore those things that we've all done? And that really is a tension that runs through the whole Bible. How can God do it? How can God forgive and not punish? And it's a tension that kind of weaves its way through countless stories in the Old Testament And it goes all through time until it comes to the foot of a cross outside Jerusalem sometime around 33 AD. Where an innocent man called Jesus, who was also called the Son of God, hangs on that wooden cross with nails driven through his hands and his feet, with a crown of thorns pushed onto his head, with lash whips across his body, hanging there Naked, humiliated, hanging there thirsty, abandoned. And the sky dark to show that it's God's anger being poured out on him, as the Bible describes it. And the thing is, as we understand what's going on there with this man hanging on this cross, as we understand that, with this man dying this terrible death, we realise how it is those two things can be resolved just how it is that God can love us, just how it is that God can be a God of faithful love and a God of faithful judgment at the same time. How do these two things meet? How do the magnets come together? Well, they come together in the body of Jesus, dying on that cross almost 2,000 years ago. So the Bible says that Jesus suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus dying on that cross took God's faithful judgment for everyone who ever had or ever would repent and turn back to God. He paid the price. He took the punishment that we deserved so that God's faithful love could be shown to us, could be shown to you, without fear of ever having to face God's faithful judgment. And three days later, he he rose again He didn't stay dead. To show us that actually it worked. What Jesus had done had paid the punishment of death for all who would trust in him. Jesus dying on that cross answers a tension that began over a thousand years before when God came down on that mountain and proclaimed his name to Moses. And Jesus dying on that cross answers a tension that still exists in each one of us today. God's faithful love is faithful judgment. How can he love me? 
and yet forgive the wrong I've done. See, every sin ever committed, every wrong deed, every wrong thought, every wrong word, God will judge. He'll either judge them in Jesus on the cross, where Jesus takes our place so that we can know his forgiveness, or he'll judge them in us at the end of time. Because God is a faithful judge, we will all have to stand before him one day and give an account of the way that we've lived. I'm not trying to impose my view on you. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. I'm just trying to say this is what God says about himself. He says, I'm a God of faithful judgment. He is a faithful judge. He will judge us. He'll judge you for the ways you've mistreated him and mistreated others. But he is also a God of faithful love. He's a God of faithful love who sent his own son into the world to die for you, that whoever believes in Jesus should not have to face his judgment, but have eternal life instead. Whoever repents and turns around and follows Jesus could have eternal life because the price, the punishment, has already been paid by him. And for me, therein lies the beauty of the story of the Bible. The beauty of the Bible. The beauty, really, of Jesus and what he did for us. The beauty of God. Therein lies what we were singing about earlier. Therein lies amazing grace. That actually God is faithful in love, but faithful in judgment. And those two things meet in his own son dying for us on the cross. And so the only tension that actually remains is what each of us will do now that we know how we respond to the God of faithful love and faithful judgment who even gives his own son that we might have life. Let me pray for us as we think on that. Father God, we thank you so much that you do speak to us today that you want to be known. Father God, thank you that you are a God of faithful love but also a God of faithful judgment. Father, thank you that you are forgiving. But Father, thank you that you will not leave evil unpunished, that you will set things right. But Father, thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus, that for those who turn and put their trust in him can have forgiveness and can know your love and can have the hope of eternal life. Father, that is amazing beyond words, that you would give your son, that he might face your judgment, that we might know your love. Amen.